Hi. Good morning. My name's Dominique, and we're going to read the scripture today, so I want to invite you guys to stand up. All right. We're reading from Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you may make, that you can take, sorry, so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day and after you have done everything possible to still stand. So stand with a belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate, and put, on, put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning and ask that you would open our minds to understand your scriptures. And that in the midst of teaching us and showing us your rhythms and your ways, that you would transform our hearts, that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus, and help us to go out into the world to show the world what you are like. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Jackson. I am uh, one of the pastors at New Life Downtown. And Joe, uh, Pastor Joe, graciously invited me to come and be with you all this morning. So, Joe, thank you so much uh, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here in Manitou and with you all this morning as we uh, continue in this teaching series and celebrate today is the day of Pentecost. Um, so in the history of the church, this is the specific day where we gather together and celebrate that in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, he had ascended into heaven and the disciples went and waited in that room in Jerusalem and then God sent his spirit into the world, uh, really to form the church and to empower us to go out into the world and live as witnesses of his resurrection. To live, as we're talking about in this series, resurrected kinds of lives uh, that begin to show the world exactly who Jesus is and what God has done in and through his life. And yet on a day like today, that can be sort of a hard thing sometimes to, to grasp. Uh, because we think about Sunday as being a day of celebration, particularly today as a day of God sending his spirit into the world. And yet, if we've been following the news at all, uh, we can see that this is also a lot of things that are happening that can be heavy on our hearts. So we think about the things that have happened in England or the things that are, have happened in Egypt over the last few weeks or the state of things in a place like Venezuela or Syria. Or maybe even we come in here this morning and think not only about the things that we see happening globally, but the things that are happening even in our own lives. The burdens that we carry, the struggles that we're facing, the disappointments that we've encountered during the course of the week. And we hold these kind of things in tension of recognizing, okay, God's spirit is here and God's spirit is at work. And yet there's also other things at play in the world. That it's not only God's spirit at work, uh, but there are other forces at work in the world. We can look around the world and in our lives and see that not everything is as it should be, that not everything may be using as we want it to be, and we live sort of in this tension. I became a follower of Jesus uh, during the, sort of the end of high school, 
And so I grew up in a small rural community in northern Iowa in a family that uh, would sort of associate itself with Christianity, uh, but Christianity in no way played a major role in our family dynamics and our family household. Uh, it was simply the kind of scenario where, as being a small town in northern Iowa, everyone sort of identified themselves as Christians, uh, but mean, being Minnesota Vikings fans actually made a bigger difference in the daily rhythms of life. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't something that actually played itself out. In the midst of my parents' divorce, Jesus found me, and I began to find my life being turned and changed and reshaped in all sorts of ways. Uh, and yet, one of the things that uh, happened in the middle of that is that I found that as all of this was happening, it didn't change all of the dynamics that were happening in my family. All of these other things were still going on. Shortly after, I went to a Christian school down in Oklahoma, and I began hearing people kind of say, like, if you have enough faith, then this will happen. And if you have enough faith, then this will happen. If you have enough faith, then this will happen. The presentation sort of began to say, like, if you just have enough faith, then everything will go well. Everything will go right. Everything will go smoothly. Everything will be taken care of. And yet that was not my experience at all. And as I read through the pages of Scripture, that wasn't what I saw playing out in the life of the followers of Jesus. That as they faced oppression and persecution, they faced imprisonment and shipwreck and all of these kinds of things that were happening in the course of their lives. And so recognizing that there are more things going on in the world than just God's Spirit. As we read in this passage today, what Paul is saying that is there is an enemy, that there is evil present in the world. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we do with that? How do we live sort of in that tension as being people of God's Spirit who are called into the world to witness to Jesus' resurrection, and yet as we do so, we face real evil? we encounter real opposition within that life that we're called to live. So in the, we're in the midst of this series on living the resurrection. We began it the Sunday right after Easter. And what we've been doing in this series is looking at these three chapters in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and talking about the kind of life that Jesus has called and invited us to live, asking ourselves, how do we live the resurrection now while we wait for the resurrection to come? And so far as we look at the book of Ephesians, what we've seen is a few things, is that uh, Ephesians opens up with Paul talking about what God's plan is. And he says very clearly that God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth together in Jesus. That what God is doing is he's reuniting what sin has separated. He's taking what sin has fractured and broken and sort of displaced, and he's bringing those things back together in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, then he's subsequently reordering the whole world under the rule of Jesus. He's reuniting and he's reordering, bringing all things together and bringing all things under the rule of Jesus. And he goes on to say, well, this is then the role of the church is to participate in God's plan, to be people who've been reunited with God in Christ and reunited with one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus, and then whose lives are being reordered under the rule of Jesus. 
who are learning how to live in light of what it is that God has done. We're being reunited and living our lives reordered. And Paul says in Ephesians 3 that this is what happens when that goes on. It says that God's purpose now is to show the rulers and the powers in the heavens the many different varieties of his wisdom through the church. That as we're reunited with God and reunited with one another, and as our lives are reordered around Jesus, the church begins to serve notice to the powers of this age that their reign is coming to an end. <laughs> we begin to serve notice to them that in his wisdom, God has defeated all of his enemies through the death and resurrection of Jesus. His victory has already been won, and it's now being realized in the world through the life of the church. We've gone in Ephesians to see, but that comes with some pushback. That the powers of this age do whatever it is that they can do to extend their influence in as many ways as they possibly can. But Paul goes on to say, so this is what it looks like for us, is that we live lives that are worthy of this calling that we've received in Jesus. We live no longer as Gentiles, but we live as new people. We live lives of love. We live as children of light. We reorder our relationships under Jesus and submit to one another in holy love. And we find as we do this then that Paul transitions to this final statement, this final sort of section of his, uh, of his call to the church. And he says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you may make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We, are fighting, we're, we aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Paul says as we live this kind of life, that we live it in the midst of a struggle that we live it in the midst of an enemy, and that we have this fight that we find ourselves in, and the fight is really against a crafty enemy. He says, take your stand against the tricks of the devil. In other words, there's something about the way that the enemy works in our lives that's easy to miss. It's crafty. It's tricky. And so the question, of course, is what exactly are the tricks of the devil? What are his schemes in the midst of those things? Interestingly, the immediately preceding passage is all about relationships. Right? It begins with finally submit, or he says, uh, to submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about the relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and kids, uh, between masters and slaves. This so the immediate preceding context is all about how we live new relationships with one another because of Jesus. And then the very next sentence after he says that the enemy is tricky, he says that our fight is not against human enemies. He talks about relationships, and then he says our fight is actually not against people. See, people are actually not our problem, but the enemy's scheme is to convince us otherwise. People are not our problem, but the enemy's scheme is to convince us otherwise. See, God's plan, as we just said, is to bring everything together in Jesus, to reunite us to himself, and reunite us with one another. So as it's God's plan to unite all things, it's the enemy's plan to divide all things. If God's plan is to unite, then the, the enemy's scheme is to divide. 
think his basic scheme is to convince us that the people that God has brought into our lives, the people that have been brought together in Christ, that they are our problem rather than him. To convince us that people are actually our problem. I think there's a sense of which the temptation is to begin to believe that our lives would be better if it weren't for certain people in our lives, right? If this person would change, if this person would move, if this person would go away, then all things would begin to be better. And I think this is why relationships are so hard. We find ourselves maybe in the midst of relationship with a spouse and saying, why isn't this easier to communicate with one another? Why isn't it easier to make decisions? Why isn't it easier to feel like we're on the same page? Why isn't it easier than what, why is it more like what we expected? Or we find ourselves in the midst of hanging out with our children or our teenagers and going, why, why is this not easier? Why is this parenting thing so hard? Why is it that they can't see that all I want is the best for them and all they seem to do is press against it? Or maybe even children the other way, thinking about our parents. Why is it that our parents don't just understand? Why don't our parents get it? Why can't our parents see what it is that we see? We find ourselves in these conflicts and these most intimate relationships in our lives. We can continue that out to thinking about the places that we work and the people that we work with. Or maybe even in the context of the church. Thinking about, oh, church would be so great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> if, I, if I just didn't have to see that person, couldn't that person go to another church? And then sometimes we even go to the place of saying, well, the people here aren't changing, so I'm going to go somewhere else because certainly it would be better if I go to that church and then we find that there's people there as well. We find ourselves in the midst of this struggle. I remember when my wife and I were going through counseling, we went through uh, 14 weeks of pre-engagement counseling. Uh, so before we even got engaged, we said, we, we got a lot to work on. <laughs> and in the midst of it, they have the, you know, the typical counseling conversations about how to resolve conflict. And they go through like, oh, here's the conflict resolution process. So we had one week that went through all of that. And the next week, the counselor said, okay, so come back next week. Pick a small conflict, just something tiny. Uh, and then we'll practice going through these steps together. And so we laughed and we said, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll talk about the pet situation. My wife really wanted pets. I didn't. It's like, oh, this will be easy. And she said, oh, yeah, we can completely resolve that one, no problem. In my mind, I was thinking, I'll make my three points and she'll be convinced and we'll never have pets. And in her mind, she was thinking, I'll make my three points and he'll get over himself and we'll have pets. And so we show up at the counselor the next week, like an hour and 20 minutes later, our counselor's like looking at the clock saying, I've got another client waiting in the, in the lobby. My wife is in tears and we're looking at each other going, oh boy. <laughs> in the midst of the conversation, either that week or the next week, the counselor looked at it and said, you know, at some point, you're going to have to find a way to not sit across the table from one another and think each other's the problem, but find a way to come along the, t the same side of the table and be able to look at the problem outside of yourselves. As God is bringing you together, and the scheme of the enemy is to make you think that really it would just be easier if this was somebody else. It would be easier if it was a different person. See, people are not the problem. But Paul does go on to say 
that evil is the issue, but evil does work through positions and structures and systems, and people can participate in that. Earlier in Ephesians, he actually said, you used to follow the powers of this world. You used to be complicit in their kind of schemes, but now you've realigned yourself with Jesus. So the enemy does work in and through rulers and authorities and forces of cosmic darkness and spiritual powers of, heaven, of evil in the heavens. Really, he lurks behind the misuse of power in the oppressive systems and structures of this world. And when we think about the kinds of things that we encounter, things where we've heard about in history that we see in the world, we have violent dictators and oppressive regimes, things that are just evil in people's lives. We can see the enemy working through that. Or we see the kind of impact of economic exploitation or inequality in the ways in which people oppress the poor and the marginalized in the world. We can look at it and say, yes, that is evil at work at play. Or we think about the rise of modern-day slavery and trafficking in the world. Or look at the way that the church, uh, the challenges the church is facing in other places of persecution and even those who are being executed for their faith. And we can see that it's through these systems, through these structures, even through various kinds of ideologies that evil can be at work in the world. And so the question, of course, for us is, what do we do when we encounter that? What do we do when we encounter the enemy and the opposition that he brings into our lives? And Paul says, he tells us to be strengthened so that we can stand. The very basic point he's making is that we need to be strengthened in order that we can stand. In the scriptures, standing is often sort of a metaphor for faithfulness or perseverance. That we need to be strengthened so that we can stand faithful in the midst of all the things that are going on. But he says we need strength from the outside. It's not strength that we have in and of ourselves. It's not something that we can even like build up through exercise right? It's a strength that comes from somewhere else. And he says we're strengthened when we put on God's armor. That this is what strengthening looks like, is that we put on God's armor so that we can stand faithful, so that we can persevere in the midst of things. And so he says, therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground, Pick up the armor so that you can stand your ground on the evil day. And after you've done everything possible to stand, so stand. Still stand. So stand the belt of truth around your, wa your waist and justice as a breastplate and put on shoes on your feet so that you're ready to spread the good news of peace. And above all, carry the shield of faith so you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Paul actually gets this image of God's armor from the Old Testament. He's actually pulling back on passages that he's familiar with. And he's looking back actually to the prophet Isaiah, who describes God as a warrior wearing armor. We find this in Isaiah 59. The prophet proclaims this. He says, truth is missing. And anyone turning from evil is plundered. The Lord looked and, up, and was upset at the absence of justice. So he's looking and he sees an unjust situation or an unjust situation. And seeing that there is no one and astonished that no one would intervene, God's arm brought victory, upheld by righteousness. 
putting on righteousness as armor and a helmet of salvation on his head, wrapping or putting on garments of vengeance and wrapping himself in a cloak of zeal. Earlier, he describes the Messiah in similar ways. Describes Israel's long-awaited Savior. In chapter 11, he says, The Messiah, he will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Paul, when he's thinking about this, he pulls back into the Old Testament and he remembers that the Lord himself and the Messiah are depicted as warriors who are clothed in armor who confront evil on behalf of the oppressed. That this is who God is, that he acts on behalf of the needy, the powerless, and the marginalized. That he shows up where there is injustice, where things have been disordered. He shows up to reorder them and to set all things right again. And so Paul commands his people who are tasked with this kind of life in the world to stand strong by putting on God's armor. So what does that really mean? What does it mean to actually put on God's armor? I think it means two things. First, I think to put on God's armor is to focus on God's character and God's acts in the midst of the struggle. To put on God's armor is to focus on God's character and God's acts in the midst of our struggle. See, he says really clearly that this is God's armor, not ours. That we put on his armor armor. So it's God's truth, God's justice, God's peace, God's faithfulness, God's salvation, God's spirit. That we're focusing on these things. So I think in the midst of struggles that we find ourselves in, it's really easy to focus on the problem at hand or even at times the power behind the problem rather than to focus on God himself. I've been in a number of prayer meetings where I think there's been times that we've said more about what's going on and said more about the enemy and even spoken to the enemy more, more than we've spoken to God. Focus more on what it is that he's doing, what he's about, and focus on him rather than on the one in whom we find victory, in whom we find peace, in whom we find justice, in whom we find salvation. So putting on God's armor, I think, means to focus our, on him in the midst of our struggles. So when we are, find ourselves facing lies and gossip and slander, when we find ourselves in places where things seem to be confused or distorted, we stand in God's truth. When we face those things, we hold on to who he is and what it is that he's done and who, it, we, who we are in him. And like a belt, that holds all things together for us. We stand in his truth when we face that kind of opposition. Or maybe when we're oppressed or hurt or wounded, when we find ourselves facing those things, we stand in God's justice that we remember that he's the one who made us right with him and who's in the process of making everything right. And so it's his justice that guards our heart like a breastplate as we face other things in this world. Or maybe when we find ourselves in places of conflict or maybe in places of crippling anxiety or fear, when we find ourselves struggling in that kind of way, the call of Paul is to stand in God's peace 
to remember that he is the one who's brought peace to us. He's the one who's reconciled us to himself, reconciled us to one another, and then given us a ministry of reconciliation into the world to be the kind of people who live in peace and bring peace because he is the God of peace. He is the one who can do that for us. Or maybe when we find ourselves in those situations when we're tempted, when we're drawn away or enticed away from faithfulness to God, or maybe in those places we find ourselves struggling with doubt and wondering, like, really, what is going on here? And questioning maybe God's presence or questioning God's work in our lives. We're called to stand in God's faithfulness, to remember that God's the God who keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. That God is the God who's more faithful to us than we are faithful to him. And that God is our shield who's faithful to us even in the midst of everything that's going on and we stand behind that and remember that he is the faithful one and that somehow we'll see his faithfulness in the midst of this. Or maybe when we find ourselves in places of distress or despair or maybe in places of depression where we find ourselves trapped in addiction and we look at our lives and it feels like there is no way out of this, that whatever is happening seems inescapable, that we remember that we stand in God's salvation, that he is the one that has rescued us from the power of sin and death, and he is ultimately the one who can rescue us from all things, that we don't have that in and of ourselves, but we look to the one who is our salvation and we remember who he is. That becomes a helmet protecting our thoughts and our minds in the midst of it and begins to renew our minds and restore unto us that joy that he is the one who saves. And in any situation when we find ourselves sort of enclosed with darkness and evil, when we find ourselves feeling like everything is caving in, we stand in God's spirit with his word. And remember it at the very beginning when there was nothing but chaos and darkness, when everything was formless and void and empty, God spoke and began to create life and light and bring order out of chaos and light out of darkness and life out of death. So we hold on to God's word and his spirit and recognizing that when God speaks, life comes. And when God's spirit is present, all things can be brought back to life. So the first thing that we do is remember to put on God's armor is to put our focus on God's character and God's acts. The second thing I think to put on God's armor means that we let God fight and we trust his methods. It's really interesting in this passage that Paul doesn't command us to fight. He says, Stand. He doesn't say fight. So we don't actually overcome by fighting. We don't overcome by violent force. We don't overcome the enemy by adopting the enemy's ways. We don't overcome injustice and oppression and those things in our world, those places that we find evil in the enemy. We don't overcome them by adopting his ways and his means. We also do not overcome them by running away or by pretending those things don't exist. 
We don't overcome by just turning a blind eye. This is not about pretending that there is no enemy, that there is no struggle. This isn't about denying things that are happening inside of our lives. But instead, we overcome by standing and letting God fight for us and trusting the ways that he brings about his victory in the world. We stand in him. We let him do the work, and we trust his methods. But we see his methods most clearly displayed on a cross. This is where we find the methods of God. God is the one who lays down his life for us. And we see his victory most clearly in the empty tomb. That God is the one who has defeated death by death. That he has overcome through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That he overcomes in the most unusual ways. The ways that we don't expect. He overcomes through these means through these methods, and we're called to stand and trust in him and know that he's the God who fights for us and to trust the way that he brings about victory in the world. That we remember that this is what God is like. He's the God who lays down his life and defeats death by death. He's also the God who said that when we find ourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when we find ourselves in the presence of enemies, he prepares a table for us. He reminds us that he is with us. And that's one of the things that happens for us every time we gather on Sunday mornings. We come and we recognize that in the midst of this struggle, that God has prepared a table for us. He's prepared a table for us that also reminds us of his ways in the world and invites us to trust ourselves to Jesus to focus on his mighty acts, to focus on his character, and to allow God to continue to do what he started in the cross, what he accomplished in the resurrection, and what he'll ultimately finish when he comes again and we feast in final victory at his heavenly table. Amen? And Pastor Joe. Thank you, Jason. Well, let's, uh, would you quiet your hearts with me? Would you bow your head? And, and Lord, as we consider putting on your armor, that Lord, you are the one who fights for us, that there is a battle, and, and this battle is against the enemy, and it's against his schemes, Lord, that, that you will fight with us. And Lord, we pray that we might stand. And Lord, when we fall, when we stumble, Lord, we come before you in forgiveness and in repentance. It's by your power that we pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to continue worshiping God. We're going to say together a prayer of confession. And it, it starts off with to the one we're praying to, to the most merciful God. And it, it goes in this prayer along the lines of when we stumble and when we fall, that the Lord would come to us and he would uh, cover over us with his love and his mercy. So would you say this and would you pray this with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.